Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Now then, a warning. This is a repeat edition. There's been so much snooker going on of late. I haven't actually had time to record a new one. But uh, just a couple of days ago, Mark Selby won the International Championship in Daqing in China. In the end, he blew Ding Junhui away in the final 10-1. Incredible margin of victory. Remember, he'd come from 2-0 down in the semi-finals to beat Stuart Bingham 9-3. And it really confirmed Mark Selby as a modern great. He's got a huge lead at the top of the world rankings. He's been world number one now since February 2015. Since I actually recorded the original podcast with Mark earlier this year, he won a second world championship. And uh, he's the real deal, no question at all. You look at his record, it's improving all the time. Of course, he's won the Paul Hunter Classic as well this season. So nine world ranking titles now. And at the age of 33, surely many more to come. And the thing about Selby is he's got so many strengths. He is a heavy scorer. He makes the centuries. He's right up there over 400 for his career. He's got an iron safety game. He can tough out frames that maybe go scrappy, go long. He keeps his concentration, which is very impressive. And most of all, of course, he's got the temperament. And I think one of the keys to Selby's success is that he's genuinely, and we'll hear a little bit of this in the podcast, genuinely grateful that he is a snooker player because it could have been very different for him if Malcolm Thorne hadn't given him free practice when he was young. His life could have turned out very differently and he enjoys being out there. He can stand up to the pressure. He's got it all. So I'm a great admirer of Mark Selby. I think what he's done with his uh, career is very impressive and continues to be. And this is another chance to hear the chat that we had earlier this year. As I say, it came before he won a second world title. Next week, I promise there will be a new podcast, but settle back now and listen to Mark Selby, the new international champion. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. I'm delighted to say my guest today is the world number one, former world champion, former Masters champion, the jester himself, Mr Mark Selby. How are you doing, Mark? Good, Dave, thanks. Uh, I always start by asking people how they got into snooker, so what was your introduction? Yeah, my father got me involved into snooker. Uh, I, I first played on a, a full-size table when I was nine years old. He brought me a little four-foot-slash-five-foot four, 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 four table when I was my fifth birthday, uh, but yeah, full-size table, first one I was nine years old at Willie Forms, which my father introduced me to. But I think it's well documented after you won the World Championship. You said that it was quite 
money was tight, wasn't it? And it wasn't easy to play that much at the club. Yeah, it was. I mean, like obviously, my mum left me when I was eight years old, sort of split the family up, and like my dad didn't really have that much funding anyway. So uh, yeah, it was tough. I was only probably going down there to practice probably once, twice a week max, if anything. Uh, until up until about eleven years old, uh, Willie Vaughan's brother Malcolm at the time spotted me, and sort of started giving me free practice because he knew obviously the funding from my father wasn't wasn't that much, so uh, that helped a lot. And then I seemed to be going every day after school. It's fair to say Malcolm was was very important, wasn't he, to your development? Yeah, massive. Uh, not only to me, but I mean, just to a lot of like the the players who, who went through Willie Fawns. I mean, you speak to people like Ricky Wold and Lee Spick, bless him. I mean, like everyone, he just sort of seemed to help. He was just a genuinely nice guy, and obviously from grassroots level, he'd done a lot for the game. And you played what as much as you could once you got the chance to, to have the free practice. Yeah, well, when he was giving me free practice, I was going there every day after school from four till about seven o'clock trying to get three or four hours practising every day, uh, Monday to Friday, and then Saturday and Sunday, there always seemed to be a tournament, more times than not there, so he, so, he sort of took me under his wing and he, he was putting me in the tournaments and taking 50% of, of my winnings, where at the time I'm only 11, 12 years yeah. old, I was still doing cartwheels, getting 50% <laughs> of the prize when I was winning. Yeah. And why do you think snooker for you, I mean obviously you had, your father was interested, but as opposed to say going out playing football or, or anything else, what, what was it about snooker? I don't know, well, I mean my father used to play just socially, nothing, nothing, uh, nothing too serious, he, he played for a pool team every week, but I mean as far as snooker goes, he just used to like playing it, he just loved the game, just go out and have a few drinks with his mates and, and just play a social game of snooker, so... He sort of introduced me into the game, and I don't know, it was just one of them games where I seemed to just, from the day I played it, just seemed to fall in love with it. Willie Thorns was one of the great centres for, for junior events as well, wasn't it? So you would start to play some of the best juniors in the country and, and learn about match play rather than just, just hitting balls around. Yeah, that's right, as you say. I mean, it was probably, at the time, when I was 13, 14, it was probably the best club in the country. I mean, the amount of tournaments they had there... The amount of top players what used to go there for the pro-ams, uh, I think it had under-16s on a Saturday one month, the following week it was under-19s, then it was a mini one-days on a Sunday, sometimes handicap tournaments, so it was, it was a great base for me and uh, I sort of took it for granted really because it was my base day in, day out to practice, but a lot of people who was travelling always used to say it was like one of the greatest clubs I've been to, even now. Yeah, And you must have improved pretty rapidly because you turned pro, like I think it was still 15 or very close to 16, it didn't take long until you were suddenly on the, on the tour. Yeah, it was my first season on the, I think it was called the Challenge Tour at the time, it was at Stockport for the, for the North and uh, I think it was Swindon for the South and my first season I went on the, the Challenge Tour and, and qualified, finished in the top 20. And they had professionals on there at the same time. So a lot of the professionals who was in the top 64, if they wanted to play on it just for match practice, they could play. But at the same time, they was knocking the lights of myself out who was trying to, to get on the tour. But at the end of the, the four events, what it was, I mean, the top 20 sort of took the pros out and the, the amateurs, what was left in there, got on the tour. And I think I finished 13th, I think. And yeah, I think it was right. I think I was 15 or 16 when I got on. So what was that like? Because you were still very young and all of a sudden you're, you're a snooker professional. You know, you've watched it on the TV all these years and now, now you're, you're part of it. Did you feel part of it? Uh, no, it, it took a while. It, it mm. was strange because, like you say, I mean, normally you look back now, you probably do it in three or four goes. You very rarely just qualify your very first time. So I was fortunate to, to, to manage to do that. Uh, but like you say, I think it helped with, with being based at Willis and having the, the likes of Malcolm Fawn around me. Yeah. Even Willie was still in the top 16 back then and he was practising and just even watching him and, and, and play, having a game with him every now and again was obviously bringing my game on loads as well as the other top pros who was there, which was Sales Joggia, Stefan Masrosis, Eddie Manning, which at the time they was in the top 64, so I mean I couldn't get any better practice. Mm. 2002 China Open, Shanghai, you beat Stephen Hendry and Ronnie O'Sullivan got to the semis. I think that was the first time we saw your sort of potential. Can you, can you remember much about that week? 
Vaguely, I mean, I, I do remember waking up at quarter past yeah. one in the morning. I was going to come to that to be uh, quarter past <laughs> one in the day, but yeah, I sort of remember little bits. I mean, it's, it's that long ago now. We've played so many matches since, but yeah, that was sort of my I don't know, probably put me on on the map really as, as far as snooker concerned. And I was just going out there, nothing to lose. I mean, it was my first time in China, so it was all a new experience. Even if I didn't do well in the tournament. Uh, but yeah, I managed to play well. I think I got to the semi-final out there and lost to Anthony Hamilton. Mm. Yeah, you were saying you you got up thinking it was the afternoon. You're playing like at two. Yeah, but it was actually one in the morning. And you're trying to get down to the venue. I was. I remember I was there. We was there with a couple of the refs, and you didn't seem to appreciate it was like pitch black outside. No, it, it, right, because like because it's your first time. Now. I mean, yeah. even now trying to get over the jet lag yeah. and trying to, to to manage it is like hard work. So. I was out there, I've gone to bed that night, sort of really excited, knowing I'm playing Stephen Hendry the next day, so I thought I'd set my alarm, make sure I get up and don't oversleep, and then for some reason I've just woke up in the middle of the night, obviously jet lagged, and uh, looked at the time, seeing it was quarter past one, and something just clicked, thinking, Jesus, I'm playing in a, an hour and 15 minutes, I better get ready, so I've jumped out of bed, jumped in the shower, got all my gear on, and I still remember now, just looking out the window where the lifts was, doing my dicky bow out the window and it's pitch black yeah. and I've not even clicked on and got downstairs I think it was Arian Williams who was one yeah. of the referees just coming back in from a night out on the drink and I'm stood in reception waiting for the courtesy car to pick us up and he's looking at me strange asking me where I was going and I sort of clicked on what was happening and I, I made out that I was going for a practice and I couldn't sleep <laughs> but you still beat Hendry you beat O'Sullivan I mean two big wins in succession did, did you start to think then well actually you know I, I can actually you know mix it with the top players uh, no, it was still early doors. I mean, obviously, I, I thought to myself. I mean, sometimes who knows? I could have just had one one good tournament and then never to be seen again. So I wasn't getting too ahead of myself. Uh, I, I was just playing each game as it goes, and I was just seeing it as a challenge. Really, I was going in there as I say with no expectations to beat them. Massive underdog from the start of the game, and uh, man- managed to come through. And then, as I say, lost to Anthony Hamilton in semi final six three. I think it was and. I remember right. I think he had two centuries and, and, and four seventies, so I didn't really play that bad, even to lose in the semi final. Mm. And then a year later, you got to a final, uh, Scottish Open. Uh, you lost, just lost out to David Gray. What was that like to suddenly be in a, in a sort of TV final? Yeah, it was huge because it was it was on Sky Sports mm. as well when when Snooker used to cover covers. Uh, Sky used to cover the snooker, so I think looking back after I come back to the UK from the China Open, I got a lot of people giving me good messages and stuff and. Sort of, it sort of sunk in what I achieved and I think it just gave me confidence more than anything else and I think that showed the following season I seemed to move up the rankings hence we're getting to the final like you say in Scotland and coming very close to, to winning the tournament mm. But after that you did kind of go backwards a little bit didn't you? You sort of started to slide down a little bit for a couple of years what, what, was, that, what was the reason for that do you think? Yeah I mean I sort of got into a relationship and f- things wasn't great and then obviously like I was like just not really practising mm. as much off the table sort of first love I suppose yeah. if anything since uh, I lost my dad so I sort of got, got involved with, with, with a girl and, and, and like I say probably wasn't really putting the hours in and sort of spending more time with her and, and then sort of went off the rails a little bit and uh, yeah and then we, we, we parted split up a few years later and then sort of started knuckling down and all my close friends were saying to me look you've obviously achieved this at a young age you need to you need to obviously carry on and, and get back on the practice table if you want to achieve something in the game because You've got potential to do well because you proved it, and sort of it sort of sunk in. And thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. I don't just want to be a journeyman. I want to try and achieve something in the game. Mm. I mean, you were still very young. You're only sort of 21, 22. 2005 World Championship, first round, you lost to John Higgins. A year later, you draw him again. He'd, he'd had a great season. He was probably the favourite that year to win it, and you beat him. And then a year after that, you're playing him in the final. So 
there's actually quite a rapid sort of return to the top there, isn't it? And, and since then, you've been one of the top players. Yeah, it was strange because I remember the first time getting to the Crucible and I was practicing the day before the draws come out and I was really excited getting there. And I probably had one of my best practice days for a long while before I'd gone to the, the Crucible to play John for the first time. So I was really excited until actually walked out there into the arena for the first time and then sat in the seats, mm. realised I'm sitting next to John, one of the greatest players to play the game, and sort of realised where I was and then clapped a little bit really. And uh, John played well and I'm not sure how we went on in that tournament, how we, how we done, but he played well and uh, it, was, it was a learning curve. And like you say, the following year I qualified again, really exciting. The draws come out, I've got John Higgins again, I'm thinking, oh no, it's the last person I want to draw up and drew him the year before. But... Yeah, I played really well, and uh, I think I beat him 10-4, I think it was. I think he beat me 10-5 the year before, and then lost to, to Mark Williams, if I remember, in the last 16. And then, as you say, the next year I qualified again and uh, got to the final, which was a great achievement. What was that like, getting to the... First of all, get to the one table, because that's like a bit of a holy grail for everyone, isn't it, at the Crucible? You're playing Sean, I think, in the, in the semis as well, good friend of yours. Yeah, 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 it was, it, was, it was great, I mean, to get to that one table set-up. I mean, the venue in itself is a great venue anyway, but when it is one table and the, and the petition's up in the middle, it's probably the greatest venue we can play in, even though it don't hold as many people as some of the other venues we're playing. But uh, as far as the prestige of the tournament and what the tournament is... It's the best venue for me by a long way, and uh, to get to that semi-final and, and to play Sean as well, I still remember in, in the morning of the semi-final, I said to him, "I said, look, whoever wins out of me and yourself, because we've grew up together." I said, "If you beat me in the semi-final, I'm going to stay and, and, and cheer you on in the final, and uh, I'd, I'd like you to do the same, vice versa." But the way the, the match went, it was such a good match, and uh, it finished in the deciding frame, and whoever lost was going to be really hurting to get to the final. And uh, Sean texted me. The next morning saying, look, mate, uh, I wish you all the best in the final, but I'm hurting too much to, to come and watch, but I'll be rooting for you at home, which was, which was still nice and understand. And I think, looking back, even though what I said the day before, I think if I'd have lost 17-16 the way the match went, I'd have probably been in the same position. Mm. And then the final, John goes 12-4 up first day. Third session, you win the first six frames, mm. and there's supposed to be two more. And they don't play them because it had gone on a little bit and they, yeah. they came off. What, what were your thoughts about that? Because, you, you know, it's all ifs and buts, but you could very easily have won those yeah, two. And then who knows, strange. at night it could have been different. It was strange because I had such a long, drooling game against Sean and it went down to the last frame. I think I've gone to bed that night, probably not till two or three o'clock in the morning. My head's in the clouds, not knowing what's really going on. And uh, didn't really get that much sleep. And I remember getting up the next day on a high, going around the room, getting ready like, like a kid at Christmas and... Uh, playing John out there and the first day I didn't really perform uh, for whatever reason whether it was a little bit of nerves whether it was fatigue uh, and, and John showed his class and sort of just picked up the pieces really and I went back to, to the room at night 12-4 down and I was like gutted really because I felt as I left myself down because that was might only be my only chance I might, I might never get there again so so I went to bed that night speaking to all my friends and they were saying look tomorrow just go out there and enjoy it obviously you've done fantastic to get the final no shame, no need to be embarrassed about your performance yesterday, just go out there and enjoy it and I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do and I sort of went out there, enjoyed it, went for my shots let my arm go, started winning a few frames and, and John started missing a few and before I know it, like I say it was 12-10 and uh, I think John was sort of a bit bamboozled because the way I played, I played really well and he was struggling a bit, he sort of went to leave the arena without even shaking my hand when the ref said that's enough and uh, he turned back around and apologised and shook my hand, but as you say I think if we didn't get pulled off, who knows? I, I might have won it that year. I mean, I think I'd have definitely gone 12 all because John seemed to be mentally gone a little bit. But we've come back at night and John does what he does best. He seems to brush himself down and, 
and played four great frames from 14-13 to, to beat me 18-13. It mm. must have given you a lot of confidence though just to, to, to get that, not just get to the final, but to push Higgins so hard in it. And, and you know, obviously then you built on that the next year, didn't you? Yeah, especially doing it out there as well as the World <coughs> Championship. It's all right doing it in some tournaments, but to actually do it out on the biggest stage, BBC tournament, biggest tournament we play in, sort of proved a, a big point to myself to, to know that obviously I can do it and it's just a matter of just keeping that self-belief. Now I know that my game's good enough to get there. I was a few frames away from becoming world champion. Having qualified for the tournament as well, knowing I was 5-0 down against Stephen Lee in the first round, looking like mm -hmm. going out. So, yeah, I think that was sort of the turning point for me as far as my career concerned, knowing that I, I can actually do it rather than before I was always doubting myself. You're no stranger, Mark, to a decider. You've played a few down the years. <laughs> and at the Masters... Uh, 2008, you never played in the Masters before. You turn up, I think you win three deciders to get to the final, then you win the final pretty easily. Well, what was that like? Because that's a completely different event to the Crucible, which is kind of intimate and there's the two tables. Wembley Arena, I think it was in those days, massive place, one table, and yet you, t you turn up and won it at your first attempt. Yeah, I mean, I mean it was strange. It's a strange one because, like you say, a few months before I'd got to the got to the world final, I think I lost in the semi finals of the UK in November to Ronnie, and he's made a, a 147 in deciding mm. frame. And then I'm going to the Masters, but even though it's like my first time now, I still felt as though I was a little bit like nothing to lose, even though I was runner-up at the Crucible and stuff, because I'd never been there, never played in the tournament before. So top 16 players in the world. I'd only just broke into the 16 after getting to the World Final. So I was sort of going there, just thought, right, just go out there and enjoy it. Uh, one table set up, it's going to be a great occasion, playing Stephen, uh, a player I've looked up to for many years from, from being a junior. And as you say, yeah, I mean, Stephen was still playing some good snooker at that time. So to, to win that match 6-5 gave me a lot of confidence. And then I think I'd done the same, as you say, against Stephen Maguire next game. I think I was, might have been 5-3 down again there as well. And, and then beat Ken. It was a little bit of a fairy tale, really. Mm. I mean, that sort of 12 months from getting to the final in the world and nearly getting to the final at the UK a few months later and then, and then winning the Masters was sort of... I had to pinch myself for it. Mm. But it's not just doing it, is it? It's doing it under pressure. And you, you did the same again... A few weeks after that, the Welsh Open, you're 8-5 down to O'Sullivan in the final, beat him 9-8. Obviously, he's got a lot of support. It's a big match, big final. Your first ranking title is in, 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 your, in your reach. I mean, how did you sort of stand up to it there? Yeah, I mean, it's it just one of them, like I say, I think, if anything, like that world was just huge. It's just the confidence, really. I mean, because I used to watch people play and see like Higgins and stuff doing it on TV, and I'm playing in practice, making 100 breaks in there, so I'm thinking, well... I can do exactly what he's doing, but to actually do it out there is a different thing. And uh, like you say, a lot of it is self-belief and, and sort of handling the pressure. And once I overcome that the very first time, probably being the World Championships, even though I got to the semi-finals in, in China and, and, and the Scottish, I, I still felt as though I was an underdog and I was just going there and just playing, playing with freedom with nothing to lose. And then going into the Worlds, I sort of proved to myself that I, that I can do it so I sort of put a lot more pressure on myself going there sort of expecting more things now mm. so when I actually got to that world final I think that was sort of the push I needed to kick on so in them prestigious situations I still had to believe in myself because I know that I can do it where before I was sort of doubting myself when I was in them positions But can you explain to people how do you actually control your nerves because a lot of people get nervous watching and they're not out there playing you've actually got to go out there everyone's watching you there's millions of people yeah. watching on TV how do you stay calm? It's just a matter of just. I, I just always try and stay in the moment. I, tr I try not to dwell on too many things like in, in the past what I've missed if I've missed an easy shot because I always just think to myself the next shot is is the most important, ir irrelevant what's happened in the shot before. And if you if you let the shot before sort of bother you, it can cost you one, two, three frames, especially the standard of snooker we're playing. So uh, I've sort of always thought that to myself and try and show no emotion off the tables and give nothing away to your opponents. 
And even when I was when I was a junior, Sean used to say to me, I was older than my years on the table, mm. probably not off the table. I mean, he's a lot more mature than me off the table and more <laughs> clever. But on the table, he used to say I was older than my years. The way the game I used to play, even as a junior, he says I was a lot more advanced than some of the others. So I think that sort of stood me in good stead uh, throughout my career. And, and like you say, yeah, just sort of staying in the moment and not getting too far ahead of yourself and, and not thinking too far back of what's happened as well. But also, it strikes me, you know, you, you're a bit like Stuart Bingham and some of the others, and Sean Murphy, you genuinely love playing, don't you? You know, it, whatever the tournament, whatever the round, wherever you are in the world, you, you still love actually just playing snooker. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I still love it now as much now as what I did do when I first started playing. Mm. If anything, I'll, I'll probably love the challenge more now because the older you get, obviously, you know, obviously, like, you don't know how many more years you're going to keep playing for. But as long as you can keep competing and, and challenging for tournaments, then... I'll, I'll carry on playing and especially like I think the enjoyment is the, the biggest part of it once you stop enjoying it I think obviously that's a time when you probably need to start looking at other things but as you say as far as enjoyment goes I mean the travelling is difficult I understand that and, and being away from home now you've got a family but as far as the competitive side I still enjoy it more than ever mm. Some people say sometimes your style of play can be a bit negative is that unfair do you think is it just a sort of a case that sometimes you know matches can go a bit scrappy Yeah so sometimes I mean sometimes in the past when I've doubted myself I've sort of like refused refuse the shot because I, I didn't really fancy it so then I'll probably play a bit more a bit more negative shot but the way I used to say I mean I used to watch Andrew for years and years and even though he's like he's, probably the greatest to play the game I mean like he won numerous amounts of tournaments but I used to say to people you're not telling me every time Stephen used to go out there he used to feel a million dollars every time he went out there to play sometimes he's going to have some days where he thinks oh, I don't feel as good today but the thing with Stephen the positive thing with Stephen he just kept going for his shots even if he probably didn't fancy the long red or, or didn't feel good that day he still kept going from where I always told myself if you don't feel confident you're not feeling great and then like chances are you, you're probably not going to pot it so I don't want to keep going from and pushing the boat out, knowing that obviously I'm thinking to myself, I'm not going to pot it. So I think that's a lot of the time when I seem to go into my shell a little bit and get a little bit negative, and, and the games probably do go scrappy. But it's not that I go out there to, to set my set my targets, think, right, obviously I'm playing Sean today, he's really attacking, so I'm going to go defensive and, and shut him out. I want to go out there and just play the game how it is, but sometimes, obviously, mentally, when, I, when I'm doubting myself, it don't happen. Does, does it bother you what, what people might say? I mean, we live in an age of, obviously, social media and everyone's got an opinion on everything. Do you pay any attention to any of that? Not really, not really, no. I mean, it's sort of like water off a duck's back, really, because, I mean, if I, if I was to finish my career tomorrow, no matter what people say, I mean, records speak for itself and, and nobody can take away the tournaments that I've won, where if I'd have gone out there and just gone crash, bang, wallop and start going for everything and play that kind of game, who's to say I probably never won anything? So it doesn't really bother me too much. I mean, I understand in sport, even if you like, Ronnie O'Sullivan's going to have his critics and you can have people who, who, who think he's the best thing since sliced bread and I understand that in sport, that's not just snooker, that's just sport in general. Mm. He was a little bit of a critic of yours, Ronnie, but actually he said something interesting at the Masters after he beat you recently, he said, because he did uh, the UK for Eurosport and he watched every match, which he wouldn't normally do, mm. and he said what I realised was that Mark tries that hard against everyone, it's not just personal against me, he, try, he tries really hard against everybody. Yeah, I, I did hear him say that, and I mean, to be fair to Ronnie, I mean, obviously, like, yeah, in the past he's come out and said a few things which some people can read into and think, oh, it's not too nice, not too nice, but I mean, we all know Ronnie, sometimes he says things, he probably looks back a few weeks later and thinks, mm. oh, I regret saying that, I probably shouldn't have said that, just a heat in the moment thing. But I think by beating him in the world final over that distance, I mean, I think a lot of people probably going into that final thought, well chances of Mark beating him, yeah he could beat him but first to 18 over, over that distance I don't think he's going to maintain the standard Ronnie can maintain over that distance and uh, because I did actually beat him I think I probably won his respect 
mm. them two days over, over, over beating him there. Whether I played negative, if people think I played negative or positive, I think just beating him over that distance, I think, won his respect. And, and, and since then, when he has done interviews, he seemed to be quite nice. Mm. Well, let's talk about that world final, because first of all, you've had to beat Neil Robertson in that unbelievable semi-final, which mm. must have taken a hell of a lot out of you. It didn't finish till the night before, obviously, the final started. First day, I think you were just hanging on, but you won the last two frames, didn't you, just to sort of stay in touch? Yeah, I think that was the difference, really. Uh, I mean, if I'd have gone... 11-6 down or 12-5 down I don't think there's no way back and, and, and winning them last two frames I knew at 10-5 I'd gone to the toilet come back and I thought well I need to win the next two to have any kind of chance and just to win them next two frames I even looked at Ronnie and you can tell his body language well, I thought well just, it's still in the balances it's not really over yet and I was walking out even 10-7 down after the, the first day I felt as though I was in front it was a, a strange feeling and I said to my friend Bobby who came over from China I said oh, I'll, I'll take that 10-7 I said because I've not really performed. I felt like Ronnie probably played 80% of his game and I'm still in the match. Yeah, I'm still behind, but I thought if I win the first session tomorrow 3-1, it's 11 all and it's game on. And uh, I come out the next day really confident and won the first four frames. And then from then on, I seem to play well the second day. Let's talk about then the, the last session. So you've just nudged in front, I think, in the afternoon. You, you're going out to play the biggest session of your life. Not like the first time when you weren't favourite to beat John, you were yeah. behind going into the last session. How do you feel going out? I mean, you've won tournaments already, you won the Masters in the UK, etc. But this is probably the biggest snooker session you've ever played. I mean, how, how are you feeling? Yeah, I, I was just trying to stay positive. I mean, I was saying to my friend, look, obviously I'll go out there. If, if I win it, fantastic. If I lose, I just don't want no regrets. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go out there. I'm going to go for my shots. Even if it means like missing, leaving them in, I just don't want to have no regrets. And because I was confident and positive, uh, I, I seemed to go for my shots. And, and sometimes when I was under the most extreme pressure, I seemed to perform and hold up because I had the self-belief, because I was confident. And uh, yeah, that's what I told myself. I thought if I get a chance, just try and pick my rhythm up a little bit, play a little bit quick and just get on with it and not sort of overthink the occasion as as easy as it sounds because obviously like when I got to 17 I'm sitting there in my seat while the referee's <laughs> racking the balls up thinking one more frame to be a world champion something you've dreamed of as a kid but I thought if I get that chance whatever chance it is I, I felt as though I need to take it because Ronnie's more than capable of just reeling off four frames in in an hour and before you know it, it it's all over and you made a, a great clearance didn't you to win the, the last frame I mean talk us through that particularly when you get down to the last black it's not one frame you need now it's one ball to become world champion yeah it, it was strange because that clearance not once did I feel nervous on it at all it's as if I was just so zoned into what I wanted to do it's as if I was just so zoned into what I wanted to do that like it's as if it was just me out there on my own and nobody else I mean uh, I, I remember potting the red black going up for the yellow and I potted the yellow to get on the green and I told myself if I got a decent angle on the green I was always going to go for it because I felt if I, if I refused it, that might be my chance to, to become world champion. And if I had refused it and then didn't get another chance, I'd have been cursing myself not to have had a go. And even though it was a tough green I took on, I had an angle, even I had to force it to get up for the brown, but I was always going to go for it whether I landed high or low. And thankfully, I managed to pot a great green and, and took out a great clearance. Should just apologise. We had a coach party going through there. Hopefully, you, you heard what Mark said there. So now you're world champion, and I mean, what an incredible achievement! How, how did you feel? Did it sink in immediately, or did it take a few days? Uh, yeah, I mean, it took more than a few days. I mean, I mean, it took a, a long, long while. I mean, just on that clearance. I mean, getting in that final, the last few frames, just like knowing what my dad said to me, and just mm. thinking of everything when my dad took me across the country, and just everything just started come flashing back, and I thought to myself. There was no way in the world, once I got down to them colours and got on the brown, I was ever going to miss that clearance. I was like concentrating and, and, and trying so hard. So, 
yeah, it was a great feeling to pot, to pot up winning black. And, and like you say, it took a long while to, to sink in. I mean, probably even to the point where it was probably the second half of the season because the first half of the season the following year, I probably put a lot of pressure on myself going out there thinking, right, I'm world champion, mm. all eyes on me, all eyes on me. Everyone's going to go out there like questioning like your game and if you start struggling and not playing well, they'll probably think, well, how's he won it and stuff <laughs> like this. And, and I felt as I had to go out there and, and play no-miss snooker because obviously I was world champion, which is not always going to be the case. Nobody really plays no-miss snooker. Second part to the season, I sort of let my arm go and just relaxed and thought, look, just play like you did if you hadn't won the world championship and just start enjoying it again because I was putting a lot of pressure on myself. And, and the back part to the, to the next season, I sort of had a good finish. Well, you won two tournaments, you won in Germany and China, but there was this, there's always, and Stuart Bingham will have this soon, this Crucible Curse talk and you know the build-up to the you walking out on the Saturday and so on. And possibly because you lost second round there, people look back and thought you didn't do too well that season. But like I say, you won two tournaments and player like yourself that's what you're looking to do is to win titles yeah of course and like you say I won like there was quite close together as well the German and then like the following month was the China Open so I was going to the Crucible like really confident uh, everyone was talking about the Crucible curse but I wasn't going there thinking there's no way in the world I can win it because of this curse I was still going there it's not actually a curse we should say there is no, no curse no, it's just, you know. no it's just obviously <laughs> stats but I mean it's there for a reason yeah. the history I mean you look at all the great players who's won it and nobody's ever defended it after winning it the first time So, but did you get caught up in that did you start to feel pressure do you think because of that because I mean you could have lost on the first day couldn't yeah you? not really no I mean it's not as if like I, and I played first session against Kerr I played quite well second session I come out and started well went 8-4 in front and then to be fair to Kurt, he's played great from 8-4 to 9-8 to, to up and probably should have beat me 10-8. He had a good chance. Then he had a good chance in the decide and I managed to scrape through. And then same again, I'm playing Anthony McGill. He's probably gone there in the same position I was the first time I was there for, for first year at the Crucible. Just go there and enjoy it, nothing to lose. And he's played great against Maguire and then he's carried it on and played fantastic against me. And I had, I had no complaints. I mean, the better play won over the three sessions. I probably had one poor session in the middle where I lost 6-2, took a 10-6 behind, but overall he deserved to win and he was a better player for out. So you've, you've won now the World, the UK, the Masters, you world number one. What, what are your sort of ambitions now, just to win them all again? Is it, is it simple as that? Yeah, it'd be nice. I mean, that would be my aim, to, to carry on and, and, and try and win them all again and do it again, the likes of John, Stephen, Ronnie, etc. has done. But uh, just to carry on enjoying it, really, and, and just try and keep competing and just try and win as many tournaments as possible. As I said earlier on, if, uh, if I don't win another tournament and my career ended tomorrow... I've got no regrets. I've achieved everything I wanted to achieve and more. So, yeah, just uh, carry on enjoying it and keep wearing the hard work in and see what happens. This Jester from Leicester nickname, I mean, obviously, number one, it rhymes, which is handy. But, I mean, do you, you're sort of being put forward as this kind of joker, but it's quite hard at times in matches to find anything funny, isn't it? Do you feel under pressure to sort of try and lighten the mood at times? Uh, not really. I mean, obviously, it wasn't really me who sort of... If, if I come out with a nickname myself, and then it's sort of like people think, well, he, he thinks he's a funny person, like, I should be making jokes. But it was actually uh, Richard Bear who was a compare at the time. He used to introduce me as a Lester Potter. And he says, look, it's not a very good nickname. We need a better one than that. And the next day he'd come in and he says, oh, what about the Jester from Leicester? Because every time we used to see each other, we used to have a laugh and a joke. Mm. And I says, well, if you think that, I said, oh, I'm going to walk out. Whatever you call me, like, doesn't matter. So mm. give it a go. And he sort of introduced it and it seemed to stick ever since. But like you say, it's tough now out there because you need to be zoned in to, to win any match nowadays with the way the standard is. So it's difficult to go out there and have a, a laugh and a joke. I mean... Yeah, sometimes obviously there's occasions in matches where something happens and you can lighten the mood and have a little laugh and a joke. But overall, it's, it's very tough and uh, you have to be switched on and focused. And you've become a father now, Mark. Has, has that changed anything in terms of how you approach your career? 
Uh, it's made me, if anything, try harder because obviously I want to try and give Sophia the best life possible and, and do as well as I can and, and make her really proud of me when she grows up. So uh, looking at the calendar and stuff, it probably probably uh, I look at it a bit different. Some of the PTCs, if I've qualified for a few and I'm into the grand finals next year, I'll probably think, well, I'll give that one a miss and stuff to spend a bit more time at home. So when I look at it that way and stuff, yeah, and also as well now, obviously I, I'm I'm happy that I've achieved everything before Sophia arrived. That I can, even if I didn't win anything again, like I say, I'm happy uh, and, and I can spend a lot of time with her. But I mean, I'll be going out there still trying as hard as possible. One of my wishes now would be to try and win a tournament and, and her to be there for the final mm. and come out and me to be holding Sophia while I've won the tournament, which would be a fantastic feeling. Mm. It's a long way off yet, but have you given any thought to what you might like to do when the, the career's over? Would you be on the on the sofa with all the other pundits? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I have thought about it. I mean, I'd like to be involved in snooker of some degree, whether it's to go into the studio like what Ken Doherty mm. and, and so on is doing, uh, whether it's to do a bit of commentary. I'd like to give something back into snooker, I think, because I feel though it's given me a great career and it's given me a great living financially so uh, I'd like to give something back I feel as though like I owe snooker at least something back mm. for what it's given me even though a lot of it's down to me putting the hard work in but I'd like to be involved in some degree whatever that is I'm not so sure and do you, on the other side of that do you ever sort of think back and wonder how your life might have panned out had you not got into snooker many and many a times yeah I, I do a lot of exhibitions over the country and stuff and at the end of exhibitions I do like question and answers and I've had that so many times people saying what would you be if you wasn't a snooker player and I can't really answer it because, I mean, I left school a year early to concentrate on snooker, done no exams, no qualifications. So I'm not the brightest spark, as I say. So, I mean, I don't know. I'll probably still be signing on now, probably at the job centre or working as a bin man. I don't know. Well, thank goodness snooker worked out for you. Thanks so much for taking part in this podcast, no problem, Mark. And thanks to everybody for listening. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.